Book two, chapter four of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eddie Winter. Arachne by George Abers. Translated by Mary J. Safford. Book two, chapter four. The sun of the following day had long passed its meridian when Hermon at last woke. The steward Grass, who had grown grey in the service of Archias, was standing beside the couch. There was nothing in the round, beardless face of this well-fed yet active man that could have attracted the artist, yet the quiet tones of his deep voice recalled to memory the clear, steadfast gaze of his grey eyes, from which so often in former days inviolable fidelity sound sense caution and prudence had looked forth at him what the blind man heard from grass surprised him nay at first seemed impossible to sleep until the afternoon was something unprecedented for his wakeful temperament but what was he to say to the tidings that the commandant of pelusium had arrived in his state gallery early in the morning and taking his wife Daphne and Chrysilla away with him to Alexandria. Yet it sounded credible enough when the Pathinian further informed him that the ladies had left messages of remembrance for him, and said that Archias's ship, upon which he was, would be at his disposal for any length of time he might desire. Grus was commissioned to attend him. The lady Thyone especially desired him to heed her counsel. While the steward was communicating this startling news as calmly as if everything was a matter of course, the events of the preceding night came back to Hermann's memory with perfect distinctness, and again the fear assailed him that the rescued Demeter was the work of Myrtilus and not his own. So the first question he addressed to Grass concerned the tennis goldsmith, and it was a keen disappointment to Hermann when he learned that the earliest time he could expect to see him would be the following day. The skilful artisan had been engaged for weeks upon the gold ornaments on the new doors of the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Amon at Tanis. Urgent business had called him home from the neighbouring city just before the night of the attack, but yesterday evening he had returned to Tanis, where his wife said he would have only two days' work to do. This answer, however, by no means appeased Hermann's impatience. He commanded that a special messenger should be sent to summon the goldsmith, and the Bithynian received the order with a slight shake of his round head. What new trouble had befallen the unusually alert young artist that he received this unexpected change in his situation as apathetically as a horse, which is led from one stall to another, and instead of questioning him, thought only of hastening his interview with the goldsmith? If his mistress, who had left him full of anxiety from the fear that her departure would deeply agitate the blind man, should learn how indifferently he had received it. He, Grass, certainly would not betray it. Eternal gods, these artists! He knew them. Their work was dearer to their hearts than their own lives, love, or friendship. During breakfast, of which the steward was obliged to remind him, Hermann pondered over his fate. But how could he attain any degree of clearness of vision until he secured accurate information concerning the statue of Demeter? 
like a dark cloud which sweeps over the starry sky and prevents the astronomer from seeing the planets which he desires to observe, the fear that Proclus's praise had been bestowed upon the work of Myrtilus stood between him and every goal of his thought. Only the fact that he still remained blind, and not even the faintest glimmer of light pierced the surrounding darkness, while the sun continued its course with glowing radiance, and that, blinded and beggared, he must despise himself if he sought to win Daphne was certain. No reflection could alter it. Again the peace of mind which he thought he had regained during slumber was destroyed. Fear of the artisan's statement even rendered it impossible to pray to his mother with the affectionate devotion he had felt the day before. The goldsmith had directed the rescue of the Demeter, yet he would scarcely have been able to distinguish it from the statue by Myrtilus, for though, like his friend, he had often employed his skilful hands in the arrangement of the gold plates at the commencement of the work, the Egyptian had been summoned to tennis before the statues had attained recognisable form. He had not entered the studio for several months, unless Bias had granted him admittance without informing his master. This was quite possible, for the slave's keen eyes certainly had not failed to notice how little he and Myrtilus valued the opinion of the honest, skilful, but extremely practical and unimaginative man who could not create independently even the smallest detail. So it was impossible to determine at present whether Cello had seen the finished statues or not. Yet Herman desired the former, with actual fervour that he might have positive certainty. While reflecting over these matters, the image of the lean Egyptian goldsmith, with his narrow, brown, smooth-shaven face and skull, prominent cheekbones, receding brow, projecting ears, and, with all its keenness, lustreless glance, rose before him as if he could see his bodily presence. Not a single word unconnected with his trade, the weather or an accident, had ever reached the friend's ears from Jello's thick lips, and this circumstance seemed to warn Herman, in the expectation of learning from him, the pure, unadulterated truth. Really had a messenger of love been awaited with such feverish suspense, as a slave whom Grasser dispatched to Tanis to induce the goldsmith to return home. It might come soon after nightfall, and Hermann used the interval to ask the Bithynian the questions which he had long expected. The replies afforded little additional information. He learned only that Philippus had been summoned to Alexandria by the king, and that the lady Thyone and her husband had talked with the leech and assented to his opinion that it would be better for Hermann to wait here until the burns on his face were healed before returning to Alexandria. For Daphne's sake, this decision had undoubtedly been welcome to the matron, and it pleased him also, for he still felt so ill physically and so agitated mentally that he shrank from meeting his numerous acquaintances in the capital. The goldsmith, the goldsmith, it depended upon his decision whether he would return to Alexandria at all. Soon after, Hermann had learned from Grass that the stars had risen. He was informed that he must wait patiently for his interview with the Egyptian, as he had been summoned to the capital that very day by a messenger from Proclus. Then the steward had fresh cause to marvel at his charge, for this news aroused the most vehement excitement. In fact, it afforded the prospect of a series, perhaps a long one, of the most torturing days and nights, and the dreaded hours actually came, nay, 
the anguish of uncertainty had become almost unendurable, when on the seventh day the Egyptian at last returned from Alexandria. That seemed like weeks to Hermon, had made his face thinner and mingled the first silver hairs in his black beard. The calls of the cheerful notary and the daily visits of the leech, an elderly man who had depressed rather than cheered him by informing him of many cases like his own, which all proved incurable, had been his sole diversion. True, the heads of the Greek residents of Tennis had also sometimes sought him, the higher government officials, the lessees of the old monopoly, and the royal bank as well as Georgius, who, next to Archias the Alexandrian, owned the largest weaving establishments, but the tales of daily incidents with which they entertained Hermann wearied him. He listened with interest only to the story of Letcher's disappearance, yet he perceived, from the very slight impression it made upon him, how little he had really cared for the Bimite girl. His inquiries about Gula called down upon him many well-meant jests. She was with her parents, while Taeus, Ledger's young sister, was staying at the brick kiln, where the former had reduced the unruly slaves to submission. Care had been taken to provide for his personal safety, for the attack might perhaps yet prove to have been connected with the jealousy of the Biomite husbands. The commandant of Pelusium had therefore placed a small garrison of heavily armed soldiers and archers in tennis, for whom tents had been pitched on the site of the burned white house. Words of command and signals for changing the guards often reached Sherman when he was on the deck of his ship, and visitors praised the wise caution and prompt action of Alexander the Great's old comrade. The notary, a vivacious man of fifty, who had lived a long time in Alexandria, and asserting that he grew dull and withered in little tennis, went to the capital as frequently as possible, had often called upon the sculptor at first, and been disposed to discuss art and the other subjects dear to Hermann's heart. But on the third day he again set off for his beloved Alexandria. When saying farewell he had been unusually merry, and asked Hermann to send him away with good wishes, and offer sacrifices for the success of his business since he hoped to bring a valuable gift on his return from the journey. The blind artist was glad to have other visits for a short time, but he preferred to be alone and devote his thoughts to his own affairs. He now knew that his love was genuine. Daphne seemed the very incarnation of desirable, artless, heart-refreshing womanliness, but his memory could not dwell with her long. Anxiety concerning Cello's report only too quickly interrupted it, as soon as he yielded to its charm. He did not think at all of the future. What was he to appoint for a time which the words of a third person might render unendurable? When Grass at last ushered in the goldsmith, his heart throbbed so violently that it was difficult for him to find the words needed for the questions he desired to ask. The Egyptian had really been summoned to Alexandria by Proclus, not on account of the Demeter, but the clasp, said to belong to Myrtilus, found amid the ruins of the fallen house, and he had been able to identify it with absolute positiveness as the sculptor's property. He had been referred from one office to another until finally the tennis notary and Proclus opened the right doors to him. Now the importance of his testimony appeared, since the will of the wealthy young sculptor could not be opened until his death was proved and the clasp which had been found 
aided in doing so. Hermann's question whether he had heard any particulars about this will was answered by the cold-hearted, dull-brained man in the negative. He had done enough, he said, by expressing his opinion. He had gone to Alexandria unwillingly, and would certainly have stayed in tennis if he could have foreseen what a number of tiresome examinations he would be obliged to undergo. He had been burning with impatience to quit the place on account of the important work left behind in Tanis, and he did not even know whether he would be reimbursed for his travelling expenses. During this preliminary conversation, Herman gained the composure he needed. He began by ascertaining whether Cello remembered the interior arrangement of the burned white house, and it soon appeared that he recollected it accurately. Then the blind man requested him to tell how the rescue of the statue had been managed, and the account of the extremely prosaic artisan described so clearly and practically how, on entering the burning building, he found Myrtilus's studio already inaccessible, but the statue of Demeter in Hermann's still uninjured, that the trustworthiness of his story could not be doubted. One circumstance only appeared strange, yet it was easily explained. Instead of standing on the pedestal, the Demeter was beside it, and even the slow-witted goldsmith inferred from this fact that the robbers had intended to steal it, and placed it on the floor for that purpose, but were prevented from accomplishing their design by the interference of Hermann and the people from Tennis. After the Egyptian in reply to the artist's inquiry concerning what other works of art and implements he had seen in the studio, had answered that nothing else could be distinguished on account of the smoke, he congratulated the sculptor on his last work. People were already making a great stir about the new Demeter. It had been discussed not only in the workshop of his brother, who, like himself, followed their father's calling, but also in the offices at the harbour, in the barber's rooms and the cook-shops, and he, too, must admit that for a Greek goddess that always lacked genuine earnest dignity, it really was a pretty bit of work. Lastly, the Egyptian asked to whom he should apply for payment for the remainder of his labour. The strip of gold from which Hermann had ordered the diadem to be made had attracted his attention on the head of his Demeter, and compensation for the work upon this ornament was still due. Hermann, deeply agitated, asked with glowing cheeks whether Cello really positively remembered having prepared for him the gold diadem which he had seen in Alexandria, and the Egyptian eagerly assured him that he had done so. Hitherto he had found the sculptors honest men, and Hermann would not withhold the payment for his well-earned toil. The artist strenuously denied such an intention, but when, in his desire to have the most absolute assurance, he again asked questions about the diadem, the Egyptian thought that the blind sculptor doubted the justice of his demand, and wrathfully insisted upon his claim, until Grass managed to whisper, undetected by Hermann, that he would have the money ready for him. This satisfied the angry man. He honestly believed that he had prepared the gold for the ornament on the head of the Demeter in Alexandria, yet the statue chiselled by Myrtilus had also been adorned with a diadem, and Shallow had wrought the strip of gold it required. Only it had escaped his memory, because he had been paid for the work immediately after its delivery. Glad to obey his mistress's orders to settle at once any debts which the artist might have in tennis, 
the steward followed the goldsmith, while Hermann, seizing the huge goblet which had just been filled with wine and water for him, drained it at one long draught. Then, with sigh of relief, he restored it to its place, raised his hand and his blinded eyes heavenward, and offered a brief fervent thanksgiving to his mother's soul and the great Demeter, whom he might now believe it himself he had honoured with a masterpiece which had extorted warm admiration, even from a connoisseur unfriendly to his art. When Grass returned, he said with a grin of satisfaction that the goldsmith was like all the rest of his countrymen. The artist did not owe him another drachma. The never-to-be-forgotten Myrtilus had paid for the work ordered by Hermann also. Then, for the first time since he had been led on board the ship, a gay laugh rang from the blind man's lips, rising in deep, pure, joyous tones from his relieved breast. The faithful grey eyes of honest grass glittered with tears at the musical tones, and how ardently he wished for his beloved mistress, when the sculptor, not content with this, exclaimed as gleefully as in happier days, Hitherto I have had no real pleasure from my successful work, old grass, but it is awakening now. If my Myrtilus were still alive, and these miserable eyes yet possessed the power of rejoicing, in the light and in beautiful human forms by the dog, I would have the mixing vessels filled, wreath after wreath brought, boon companions summoned, and with flute-playing songs and fiery words, offer the muses Demeter and Dionysus their due meed of homage. Grass declared that this wish might easily be fulfilled. There was no lack of wine or drinking cups on the vessel. The flute-players whom he had heard in the odium at Tanis did not understand their business amiss. Flowers and wreaths could be obtained, and all who spoke Greek in Tanis would accept his invitation. But the Bithynians soon regretted this proposal, for it fell like a hoar-frost upon the blind man's happy mood. He curtly declined. He would not play host where he was himself a guest, and pride forbade him to use the property of others as though it were his own. He could not regain his suddenly awakened pleasure in existence before Grass warned him it was time to go to rest. Not until he was alone in the quiet cabin did the sense of joy in the first great success overpower him afresh. He might well feel proud delight in the work which he had created, for he had accomplished it without being unfaithful to the aims he had set before him. It had been taken from his own studio and the skilful old artisan had recognised his preliminary work upon the diadem which he, Hermann, had afterward adorned with ornaments himself. But alas, this first must at the same time be his last great success, and he was condemned to live on in darkness. Although abundant recognition awaited him in Alexandria, his quickly gained renown would soon be forgotten and he would remain a beggared blind man. But it was now allowable for him to think secretly of possessing Daphne. Perhaps she would wait for him, and reject other suitors until he learned in the capital whether he might not hope to recover his lost sight. He was at last secure against external want. The generous Archias would hardly withhold from him the prize he had intended for the successful statue, although the second had been destroyed. The great merchant would do everything for his fame-crowned nephew, and he, Hermann, was conscious that had his uncle been in his situation, he would have divided his last obol with him. 
refusal of his assistance would have been an insult to his paternal friend and guardian. Lastly, he might hope that Archias would take him to the most skilful leeches in Alexandria, and if they succeeded in restoring his lost power of vision, then, then yet it seemed so presumptuous to lull himself in this hope that he forbade himself the pleasure of indulging it. Amid these consoling reflections, Hermon fell asleep, and awoke fresher and more cheerful than he had been for some time. He had to spend two whole weeks more in tennis, for the burns healed slowly, and an anxious fear kept him away from Alexandria. There the woman he loved would again meet him, and, though he could assure Thyone that Nemesis had turned her wheel away from him, he would have been permitted to treat Daphne only with cool reserve, while every fibre of his being urged him to confess his love and clasp her in his arms. Grass has already written twice to his master, telling him with what gratifying patience Hermon was beginning to submit to his great misfortune, when the notary Melampus returned from Alexandria with news which produced the most delightful transformation in the blind artist's outer life. More swiftly than his great corpulence usually permitted the jovial man to move, he ascended to the deck, calling, Great, greater, the greatest of news I bring, as the heaviest but by no means the most dilatory of messengers of good fortune from the city of cities. Prick up your ears, my friend, and summon all your strength, for there are instances of the fatal effect of especially lavish gifts from the blind and yet often sure aim of the goddess of fortune. The Demeter, in whom you proved so marvellously that the art of a mortal is sufficient to create immortals, is beginning to show her gratitude. She is helping to twine wreaths for you in Alexandria. Here the vivacious man suddenly hesitated, and, while wiping his plump cheeks, perspiring brow, and smooth fat double chin with his kerchief, added in a tone of sincere regret, That's the way with me. In one thing what really moves me, I always forget the other. The fault sticks to me like my ears and nose. When my mother gave me two errands, I attended to the first in the best possible way, but overlooked the second entirely and was paid for it with my father's staff, yet even the blue whales made no change in the fault. But for that I should still be in the city of cities, but it robbed me of my best clients, and so I was transferred to this dullest of holes. Even here it clings to me. My detestable exultation just now proves it. Yet I know how dear to you was the dead man who manifests his love even from the grave. But you will forgive me the false note into which my weakness led me. It sprang from regard for you, my young friend. To serve your cause, I forgot everything else. Like my mother's first errand, it was performed in the best possible way. You will learn directly. By the lightnings of Father Zeus and the owl of Athene, the news I bring is certainly great and beautiful. But he who yearned to make you happy was snatched from you, and though his noble legacy must inspire pleasure and gratitude, it will nevertheless fill your poor eyes with sorrowful tears. Melampus turned as he spoke to the misshapen Egyptian slave who performed the duties of a clerk, and took several rolls from the drum-shaped case that hung around his neck, but his prediction concerning Hermon was speedily fulfilled, for the notary handed him the will of his friend Myrtilus.
It made him the heir of his entire fortune, and, however happy the unexpected royal gift rendered the blind man, however cheering might be the prospects it opened to him for the future, and the desire of his heart, sobs nevertheless interrupted the affectionate words which commenced the document Melampus read aloud to him. Doubtless the tears which Hermann dedicated to the most beloved of human beings made his blinded eyes smart, but he could not restrain them, and even long after the notary had left him, and the steward had congratulated him on his good fortune, the deep emotion of his tender heart again and again called forth a fresh flood of tears, consecrated to the memory of his friend. The notary had already informed the grammateus of the disposition which Myrtilus had made of his property in Hermann's favour a few days before, but by the advice of the experienced Proclus the contents of the will had been withheld from the sculptor. The unfortunate man ought to be spared any disappointment, and proof that Myrtilus was really among the victims of the accident must first be obtained. The clasp found in the ruins of the white house appeared to furnish this and the notary had put all other business aside and gone to alexandria to settle the matter the goldsmith cello who had fastened a new pin to the clasp and could swear that it had belonged to myrtilus had been summoned to the capital as a witness and with the aid of the influential grammateus of the dionysian games and priest of apollo the zeal of melampus had accomplished in a short time the settlement of this difficult affair which otherwise might perhaps have consumed several months the violent death of myrtilus had been admitted as proved by the magistrate who had been prepossessed in hermann's favour by his masterpiece besides no doubts could be raised concerning the validity of a will attested by sixteen witnesses the execution of this last testament had been entrusted to archias as Myrtilus's nearest relative, and several other distinguished Alexandrians. The amount of the fortune bequeathed had surprised even these wealthy men, for under the prudent management of Archias, the property inherited by the modest young sculptor had trebled in value. The poor blind artist had suddenly become a man who might be termed rich, even in the great capital. Again the steward shook his head, this vast, unexpected inheritance did not seem to make half so deep an impression upon the eccentric blind man as the news received a short time ago that his trivial debt to the goldsmith cello was already settled. But Hermann must have dearly loved the friend to whom he owed this great change of fortune, and grief for him had cast joy in his immense new wealth completely into the shade. This conjecture was confirmed on the following morning for the blind man had himself led to the greek necropolis to offer sacrifices to the gods of the nether world and to think of his friend when soon after noon the lessee of the royal bank appeared on the ship to offer him as many drachma or talents as he might need for present use he asked for a considerable sum to purchase a larger death offering for his murdered friend the next morning he went with the architect of the province to the scene of the conflagration, and had him mark the spot of ground on which he desired to erect to his Myrtilus, a monument to be made in Alexandria. At sunset, leaning on the steward's arm, he went to the temple of Nemesis, where he prayed and commissioned the priest to offer a costly sacrifice to the goddess in his name. On the return home, 
Hermann suddenly stood still and mentioned to Grass the sum which he intended to bestow upon the blind in tennis. He knew now what it means to live bereft of light, and he added in a low tone to be also poor and unable to earn his daily bread. On the ship he asked the Bithynian whether his burned face had become presentable again, and no longer made a repulsive impression. This Grass could truthfully assure him. Then the artist's features brightened, and the Bithynian heard genuine cheerfulness ring in the tones of his voice, as he exclaimed, Then, old Grass, we will set out for Alexandria as soon as the ship is ready to sail, back to life to the society of men of my own stamp, to reap the praise earned by my own creations, and to the only divine maiden among mortals, to Daphne. The day after tomorrow, exclaimed the steward in joyous excitement, and soon after the carrier dove was flying towards the house of Archias, bearing the letter which stated the hour when his fame-crowned blind nephew would enter the great harbour of Alexandria. The evening of the next day but one, the Proserpina was bearing Hermon away from the city of Weavers toward home. As the evening breeze fanned his brow, his thoughts dwelt sadly on his Myrtilus. Hitherto it had always seemed as if he was bound, and must commit some atrocious deed to use the seething power, condemned to inaction. But as the galley left the tenitic branch of the Nile behind, and the blind man inhaled the cool air upon the calm sea, his heart swelled, and for the first time he became fully aware that, though the light of the sun would probably never shine for him again, and therefore the joy of creating, the rapture of once more testing his fettered strength would probably be forever denied him. Other stars might perhaps illumine his path, and he was going, in a position of brilliant independence, toward his native city, fame and, eternal gods, love. Daphne had conquered, and he gave only a passing thought to Ledger, and the hapless weaver Arachne. End of Book 2, Chapter 4